at the new indian we have with us professor minakshi jain a historian a political scientist an author of several books and a recent recipient of padma shri india's fourth highest civilian award welcome to reason the new indian's platform where we ask questions behind the issues that concern you welcome professor jain thank you so much for having me professor jain i'm going to begin this conversation with a very simple question yes for decades you were a lone scholarly voice among historians and scholars of india you faced a lot of contempt and perhaps isolation as well for your contrarian scholarship finally this year recently you and your work have been acknowledged it's been honored with padma shri how do you feel actually it's a very difficult description how to answer this question because as you said for decades i was on my own uh, but it was i'm not presenting myself as a victim because i did what i wanted to do it was a passion with me to discover the hidden secrets of indian the indian past which had been hidden from all students of indian history so i began this journey and uh, i enjoyed every moment of that journey i was not ridiculed but i was isolated so i have to uh, say that i there were i was not subject to any ridicule but certainly i was isolated uh, but over the last few decades people have been reaching out to me unofficially to say that uh, you know they really find my work very interesting and apart from historians it's the ordinary people who have reached out so you know uh, now we have reached a situation where academics are being bypassed so what they are teaching universities doesn't matter to people you know and people are wanting to know more about their past so social media has become a very very important tool for me and people like me to reach out so uh, getting the padma shri was of course a moment of satisfaction and uh, it was actually a recognition not of me but of the work that i have done that narration of indian history which was being suppressed uh, had got recognition so i look upon it not as a personal vindication but as the vindication of a particular view of indian history which had been silenced and suppressed let's talk about your work you focused on medieval india's history and the books that we read in our schools for example projected medieval india as a country where there was conflict there was violence and it seemed that the projection was that both hindus and muslims muslim rulers were alike that there was no difference there was equivalence drawn between their tyranny their oppression this is exactly the problem with studying indian history in the medieval period because the dominant school of historians that is the marxist historians they had two objectives while they were writing indian history the first objective was to paint ancient india as a period of strife conflict and caste oppression when there was really not much evidence to support that and for the medieval period their main objective was to erase all traces of islamic iconoclasm now india 
has been the victim of sustained iconoclasm from 710 AD. 710 or 12, that is when the Sindh, it fell to the Arab armies and Muhammad bin Qasim was the one who finally uh, conquered Sindh and that also I must add that the conquest of India, uh, contrary to what the historians have told us, it was a very sustained long struggle. So, you know, tiny little Sindh, it took the Arab army 75 years to capture Sindh. And that was totally in contrast with their successes in West Asia, even in Europe, France and Spain. You know, Persia, Syria, all these mighty empires, they cut as knife through butter. So, they were expecting an easy walkover in India. And the resistance that they faced came as a shock to the caliph. He did not know that the Arab armies would be defeated again and again in Sindh. And after Sindh, Kabul and Zabul, there were two other frontier states. So the Arab armies took 75 years to capture Sindh. And when I say capture Sindh, it doesn't mean that it was the final takeover of Sindh because resistance continued, continued, continued. And Kabul and Zabul. So for four centuries, it took the Arab and Turkish armies, it took them four centuries to reach Punjab. Interestingly, you know, we never read anything about Raja Dahir. Yes. And uh, the struggle of Raja Dahir and his family. And you know, uh, his when uh, Dahir lost, I mean, the Church Nama is an account of that period, which gives a detailed narration of the struggles and the battles that Dahir and his family fought. And his son, when Dahir lost, his son was forcibly converted to Islam. His wife was also forcibly and converted. And when uh, the Arab armies went back or made a retreat, then immediately he reconverted to Hinduism and continued the struggle. And one of his wives, you know, uh, when the fort where she was taking refuge was surrounded, then she and the women who were there, they said, we will commit Johar. And they did commit Johar because they didn't want to fall into the hands of the invading armies. Now, the story of iconoclasm begins in Sindh. Because, you, you know, there was a very famous temple, the Sun Temple in Multan. And that Sun Temple was revered throughout India. And the Chinese traveler, Hyun Sang, who visited Sindh, saw that temple. And he has described the image in that temple, how it was of gold and how it was decked with precious jewels. And he said, uh, kings from all over India pay homage and they send tribute. And people come from all parts of India. It was such a major attraction. So, you know, 712, this is the first major temple of India, which was revered throughout India, which falls to the Islamic armies. And, uh, you know, uh, there is a Arab travelers who came there. They said that, you know, a piece of cow's flesh was hung around the image. That was the first account that we have of the desecration of the image. And subsequently, Arab travelers, they write that, you know, when the Hindus marched to defend or to fight the Arabs, then the Arabs would say, we are going to destroy your image. Then they would immediately retreat. So, you know, that, that threat that we are going to destroy the image of the sun. Finally, that image was destroyed. And this story of destruction, it continues throughout the Sultanate period, the Mughal period and even beyond. 
and in fact in parts of the subcontinent it continues till today the bamiyan buddhas were blown up you know they were not let me interrupt you yeah, here yeah sure lot of uh, your critics have been saying even now they say that you see history as a continuum yes that as if you know ever since the first islamic invasion that invasion has continued till now and from their perspective it's not a continuum continuum it's not a continuity of a process it is the continuity of an ideology that ideology which uh, the subcontinent experienced in 712 it continued in the sultanate period in the mughal period in the mughal period also which we look upon as a more benign rule there were very few rulers who did not indulge in iconoclasm maybe akbar was a sole exception uh, but there also you know there are contrary views about his siege of chitor etc but the last important invader of india was ahmed shah abdali in 1757 after the death of aurangzeb so it's not that the ideology stopped working with the death of aurangzeb and his attack on the sacred cities of mathura have been chronicled by a camp follower of his so this camp follower he wrote in persian and his account was translated into english by the british ics officer william irwin in 1901 the point that i'm making is that all the evidence that we have of continued sustained iconoclasm in the subcontinent is evidence that was recorded well before the so called hindutva historians came on the scene so the so called hindutva historians don't really have to go around looking for material it is all there that brings me to this question about sources lot of leftist marxists i'm not even sure whether we should be even calling them leftist marxist historians because uh, even on many issues if you really look at history of common people then you have to talk about common hindus yes uh, common natives but they haven't really talked about native indigenous people of india that prism is missing it's so i'm not sure what label to give them but uh, historians who have whitewashed the crimes of islamic invasions and who have tried to project india as this wonderful place where everything was hunky dory hindus and muslims lived uh, peacefully and in harmony we read this time and again that there's a syncretic culture there's hindus and muslims came together and there was bhakti movement so my question is that lot of these historians have been questioning sources that so called hindutva writers and historians have been using is there a question of credibility of sources see i can say for myself that i have used only sources which have been used by marxist historians if you want to call them that there is no so called hindutva source that i have used and you are talking about this you know ganga jamna tehzeeb or syncretic culture if you look at the work that has been done by professional historians i'll give you some examples for example the jazia the jazia was a tax that was levied because you were a non muslim and the rate of taxation was very high the rate of taxation was high so that you may be tempted to convert because when you convert then the jazia you don't have to pay the jazia and in fact 
uh, studies have been done uh, on the rate of jazia in because some papers were found in the province of Punjab. You know, there were four categories of people, the rich, the not so rich, the average and the poor. The poor, that is the indigent, they were exempt from the jazia. But the other three categories, the amount of money that was collected from them in the province of Punjab on the basis of Mughal documents that have been found showed that it was a very high taxation. Second, when you're talking about Ganga Jamna's Dhezib, what was the participation of the people of this country in the political process? All right. In the Sultanate period, for the first hundred years, only one Indian Muslim was allowed to enter the nobility or the ruling class. And he was executed for treason within one year. So for the first hundred years, there is no participation of what you want to call the natives of this. And then after that, there is a revolt and we have the Khalji revolution and some other people are brought in. Then under the Sayyids and Lodis, again, it's only an Afghan affair. So the point is that for the Sultanate period, political participation remains largely a preserve of what we would call foreign Muslim. Now to come to the Mughal period, the story is even more fascinating. You know, Akbar we hail as the best example of a Mughal ruler. But Akbar, when he came to the throne, his nobility, nobility means council of ministers, you know, the ruling class. It consisted overwhelmingly of two foreign groups. That is the Turanis. Turanis were people who came from Central Asia and the Iranis, that is Persians. So that was the composition of his nobility. Now, his experience, because he was a young boy, 13 when he ascended the throne, he found that these foreign nobles, they came from more distinguished families than him, they were older than him and they were all the time creating problem for him, revolting, revolting, revolting. Then Akbar came to the conclusion that this scale, Taraju, has all the weight on one side, there is nothing on the other side. So if I want to strengthen my position, I must have some weight on the other side. And very intelligently, he picked up only two groups. Which were those two groups? One was the Rajputs. Rajputs because they were sword arm of Hindu society. Hmm. And the second was Indian Muslims because Indian Muslims would never revolt against him. They have no constituency. The foreign nobility will not accept them. In spite of that, 70% of Akbar's nobility consisted of Turanis and Iranis and 15% of Indian Muslims and Rajputs. And again, as far as the Rajputs are concerned, it was mainly the house of Ambar or what we call Jaipur. So it was not that he was opening his doors to all sections of society. That's not true. In the administration, there were people from the subcontinent because obviously how many people can you bring from outside? And this uh, composition of the nobility did not change even till the time of Aurangzeb. The foreign component uh, declined because the number of people coming from outside was not that much because of developments in those countries. And the Maratha, the involvement of the Marathas in Deccan politics, that also was a contributory factor. So why do you think the historians erased many of these, you know, facts and we never got to read them? What was the objective? What was the motive behind such erasure of history? No, uh, what I can make out is that the 
attempt was to erase the harshness of Islamic rule. We have to be very clear that it was a harsh rule, notwithstanding the Taj Mahal being constructed or you know Red Fort or whatever, it was basically a harsh rule and they wanted to present uh, India as a region where Islamic iconoclasm and the ferocity of Islamic rule was you know it was not depicted. They wanted to erase the memory of that. Perhaps because of the partition. Because, because of, of the partition because many people did not move out of India. Many Muslims stayed behind. So they had to you know. They wanted to avoid more conflict. Avoid more conflict. Exactly. So in a way erasure of history, erasure of truth to keep harmony. To keep harmony. But the thing is that you know you mentioned a very important point that ordinary people. Now that is the whole problem. The ordinary people nurtured and remembered what they had gone through. So this success of the Marxist historians succeeded only as far as the English educated class was concerned. You know because they went to the universities, those people were their professors, they wrote read books by them. But as far as the ordinary people were exactly. concerned, they were not because they were not studying history, they were not students of history. That memory remained with them over the generations. And I want to give you one reason why that memory persisted. Persist. That was, and this is a viewpoint that left historians have overlooked or ignored deliberately. See, when the uh, sacred structures of Hindu civilization or Indian civilization were attacked, the attack was so thorough that in the entire North India, there is not a temple standing which is before the 18th century. So that devastation was so complete. But what they have overlooked is that when these temples were attacked, temples were huge structures. There was no way that they could be defended against an invading army. So the devotees and the priests, they ran away with what was most precious to them in the temple and that was the murti. Yeah. So this story of protecting the murti is a story in which ordinary people were yeah. involved. So that memory, they ran away with the murti here, there, wherever, buried it under the ground. And lot of idols actually, I discovered them in New York in the uh, museum. Yes. And it was, it was such an astonishing moment for me personally because uh, I had never imagined that what belonged to us, yes. I would find it in a foreign country. And you know, there's a temple in the south where the murtis were disguised as corpses, dead bodies and taken out of the temple as dead bodies. And you know, again, the beauty of the whole thing is that we say that Hindus don't have a sense of history, but the number of inscriptions that we have found recording this now this recording of the murtis being disguised as dead bodies is recorded when they were brought back into the temple. So the inscriptions tell a story and mostly political power was not involved because how many kings were left in any case. Yeah. So it was ordinary devotees, it was temple priests, it was as you say the common people. Yeah, and I think that's uh, where Romila Thapar and her entire, uh, I would say, coterie of historians forgot about Somnath Temple, as you wrote yeah. uh, very uh, extensively about Somnath, yeah. that <clears throat> it were people, the memory of uh, Somnath Temple was so intrinsic and it was so embedded 
that even in 1947, there was a debate about a reconstruction of Somnath, you know, Gandhi and Nehru, and they debated about it. And what was very intriguing that your rebuttal to Romila Thapar on Somnath was along these lines, what you mentioned. But I want you to tell our audience that why did Romila Thapar uh, basically say that attacks on Somnath temple were just basically for trade? And it was concerned about economy and it was about wealth. If you're an influential historian, then your viewpoint should have many people endorsing it. I don't think anyone apart from that school endorses her point of view. But you talked about Somnath and I want to, uh, you know, mention two things which will interest your viewers. You know, when Mahmood Ghaznavi, after the attack on Somnath, was going back home, then he wanted guides to show him the route back. He wanted to take a shorter route. And so, uh, one of the guides, he said, I will take you back. And this account that I'm telling you is narrated in Persian by a Muslim historian. So again, it's not something that a Hindutva historian has dug out. It's publicly available. Now, this Persian historian writes that this guide took us along a path. And after some time, we were thirsty for water. And we asked him, where is water? He said, you destroyed my deity. This is my revenge on you. I have deliberately led you on this path so that you do not make it back home. This is an account of an act by a common citizen or a common person and it is recorded in a Persian account which is available for everyone. So this is the kind of sentiment that these actions aroused. And one more thing I want to say about Somnath. You know, uh, after Mahmud Ghaznavi, Alauddin Khalji also attacked Somnath. Because you know, the Hindus, they had this practice that if you destroy the temple, we'll build a small one, but we'll continue worshipping that. So Alauddin Khalji also sent an army to Somnath and uh, supposed to have desecrated that temple. And when that Delhi army was coming back, it had to pass through the kingdom of Jalor in Rajasthan. Now, Jalor is a very tiny kingdom. And that king of Jalor, he took on the Khalji armies and according to him, he defeated them. That's not the important point. More important, this king of Jalor, his grandson, two, three generations later, he said, you know, my grandfather, he took on the might of the Khalji armies. How will my generation and my successors remember this? So he commissioned a court historian to write about this struggle that his grandfather put up to defend the image of Somnath and to take on the Khalji armies. So, I mean, why would he bother about what his grandfather did three generations ago unless it meant something to him and unless it meant something to the person who was going to write it. So, you know, these kind of things. Now, again, I'm coming back to the point that you made about common people. Now, these are not responses of you know, the elite class. Yeah. It is small little rulers taking on the might of the sultans of Delhi. Yeah. It's a very big thing. So that brings me to the other question that uh, in Somna Temple's uh, destruction, Romila Thapar also and, and perhaps other historians too have been saying that other Hindu rulers also destroyed temples. Uh, they destroyed, for example, there has been this common 
uh, view that Hindus destroyed Buddhist temples. They destroyed Jain temples. So how is it that Muslim rulers destroying Hindu temples is a different thing? This is again part of that ploy of justifying what the Islamic invaders and rulers did. In my book, Flight of Deities, in the introductory chapter, I have taken up many, many important cases of Hindu kings and what they did to the image. All right. And I'll just give you one or two examples. And I've taken up this Buddhist thing also. Now, you know, Krishna Devaraya, he was the king of Vijayanagar. And he attacked Orissa. And he won that battle. And from Orissa, he brought back a very revered image of Lord Krishna. He brought it back to his kingdom. He did not desecrate that temple or destroy that temple or break the image. In fact, if you go to Hampi today, even today you will find a Krishna temple built by Krishna Devaraya. And this image of Krishna that he bought from Orissa was instated in one of the rooms or one of the temple wings of this temple. This is the story that goes on recurring again and again. You know, in uh, Khajurao, there is that Vaikunt temple. That also, that, that story of that image is so remarkable, it changes hands with six rulers of the subcontinent. Because everyone regards it as a very sacred image and very powerful image. So, ruler from one state gets it to, to his state, then it's lost to another state. So, six generations and finally it is instated in Khajurao. And I just want to add one thing. This story of reclaiming images, it has a great antiquity. The first evidence that we have of it is before common era. You know, uh, there was a king of Orissa, Kharvela was his name. And his kingdom was attacked by the Nandas of, you know, uh, not, uh, Magad. Hmm. And they took away an image of Kaling Jin. Kaling means Orissa, Jin means a Jena. We presume it's a Jain image. Now, Kharvel, he writes an inscription, which is still there, the Hathi Gumfa inscription, and in which he says, I marched into the palace of the king of Magad and brought back that Kaling Jin, okay. which he had taken away by force. And, you know, he's so proud that he's bringing back this image. So, it's so, not destruction then? There is hardly, there is one case in Kashmir, which I have mentioned. Uh, in that king, he is given the title of Turushka king. Mm -hmm. You are behaving like a Turk. Okay. Are and, we talking of Harsha? Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, they say that, you know, and uh, Raj Tarangri, Kalhan, he says, because he discusses this, and he says that, you know, uh, one explanation could be that he had a large number of Turks in his army. Okay. So, I have given, uh, there are one or two exceptions which I have given the reasons why. But to conclude from this that Hindu rulers were repeated, you know, and the Agmas, they specify, I have given the uh, uh, text of the Agma in my book, that when a king is going to wage war on another king, it is obligatory on him to provide security for the women, the aged, and the animals. Okay. And when he wins and he brings back that image, within three years, that defeated king, he brings back that image so that the worship of that image continues. Okay. That is the reason, that there is no interruption in the worship. And it says that the defeated king should try to get back that image within three years. 
so these things are discussed there's a perception that islam came via of course as you mentioned violence but it also came through sufis and it also came through just influence and or also perhaps because hindu society was so caste ridden hindus were so regressive there was no concept of equality that islam looked uh, like a very attractive uh, refuge this is a very uh, formidable argument that uh, the marxist historians have provided but if you scratch beneath the surface you'll find that it is totally hollow now you know this they said that hindu society was caste ridden and the brahmins were oppressing the lower castes and when the turkish armies came the hindus just crossed over to them because of the egalitarian message of islam now there are a couple of points that i want to make one is that till the british census policies began the caste system was a very fluid system and upward mobility was open to everybody now when this arab and turkish invasions began at that time there was no kshatriya class hmm. the people felt the thinkers the thought leaders so let me interrupt you our ancient scriptures uh, we have for example mahabharata we have very clear caste divisions and uh, perhaps not in the same framework as we understand it now but uh, karna's caste is mentioned he's uh, both a kshatriya but not you know raised by kshatriyas yeah, yeah so there is constant caste debate within mahabharat there is caste debate but there is also fluidity let me just uh, complete this so uh, when the arab and turkish invasions began uh, you know in the ancient period we only hear of Ra- uh, kshatriyas we don't hear of rajputs hmm true okay so in the medieval period there is a myth and that myth is obviously based on some historical fact what that historical fact is we don't have any trace of it now but there is a strong myth that on mount abu mm-hmm. agni kul yagya was performed mm-hmm. and that yagya was performed to create a warrior class which could confront the arabs and turks okay and out of that yagya four rajput groups came and who are these four rajput groups they were tribals who were elevated to the status of kshatriya because tribals are very good at warfare you know very skilled in certain aspects of warfare so the tribal communities were elevated to rajput status by this agnikul yagya in fact the second varna throughout history was an open ended varna whatever your caste if you captured power in a particular area however small you were automatically raised to kshatriya status so this is one now the thing is that the turks they were so conscious of their racial superiority that in the early medieval period there is no question of them regarding the indian muslims as their equals hmm. so you know uh, there is a muslim historian who has written that the social status of the convert remained exactly as it was before he converted now you asked or you mentioned the sufi influence now when you look at the functioning of the sufi khanqas you know and people have done studies on the sufi khanqas for example pm kuri he has written on the shrine of muhyiddin chishti at ajmer and what they found was 
that the disciples of the Sufi master, they were, uh, you know, entering the circle of his devotees, not in the inner circle. So the, they were at the last circle. So it was not that the Sufi order was, you know, treating everyone as equal. Equal, okay. And the other thing about the Sufi order is that there was a group of Sufis whom we call warrior Sufis. So these were the front guard of the Arab, Turkish armies. For example, in the south, the Sufi moved first and they prepared the ground and they even fought and the Turkish armies came later. So this whole impression that we have of benign Sufism is not wholly true because we have Sufis making a conscious decision of uh, demarcating the Indian converts and the non-Indian converts and we have Sufis serving as the sword arm of the Islamic State for example in Bijapur in South India and there is a book the Sufts of Bijapur. So this also uh, you know there is a lot of myth which have to be separated from what is the actual facts. I also hear from a lot of Pakistanis that had Islamic invaders been so brutal, uh, they would have converted the entire Indian subcontinent. But that did not happen. That did not happen for the simple reason that their numerical strength was very little compared to the population of India. And in fact, this debate on how to convert or whether to convert is there in the court circles. And we have this example of the Sultanate period like Iltutmesh, uh, Jalaluddin Khalji, they are discussing what to do. And uh, Iltutmesh says that, you know, right now, we are like salt in a dish. So, you know, we cannot at all think of converting because we are numerically weak. And when our strength grows, we will certainly walk the talk. And Jalaluddin Khalji, there is a very interesting conversation which is recorded again by his court historian which says that you know how do I feel when I see the Hindus singing under my balcony and going to Jamnaji for their prayers but I can't do anything because again we are a minority but he says that imagine my pain when I see them singing and dancing and going with their images to Jamnaji to pray. So it's not that they were uh, very uh, happy about the situation. It was as astute rulers, they realized that they cannot possibly convert the entire subcontinent by the sword. So uh, there's been lately a debate on the changing of names like Arunzeb Road and there's been a lot of debate on Tamur, on Khilji. We have had movies coming on these uh, controversial rulers. And there's one view that we don't need to go back into history. We must look at present. We must look at how we need to live harmoniously, how we need to be a syncretic society, whatever uh, past we had, it's over, it's gone. We need to look forward. What would your argument be? Uh, I can certainly understand renaming Aurangzeb Road because he was a person who was so bigoted. And I want to give you an example. You know, when he was 80 plus, there is a letter that he's written to Mughal officials in Gujarat. And that's there on record. And he says that, uh, please stop 
the Hindus from making terracotta images. You know, terracotta images we buy when there is Diwali, you know, we bring Lakshmi Ganesh. So he said that don't allow that to happen, even terracotta images. So how can we honor that kind of person? And he also said that please go to Somnath, since we have discussed Somnath, and check whether the Hindus have revived worship over there. Because, you know, they have this habit of going on, reviving, reviving. And if they have revived worship in Somnath, destroy it in such a manner that worship can never occur there again. So, you know, that memory of Aurangzeb, it is a terrible memory based on the civilizational experience. And it speaks of that strong memory that all these decades of leftist history writing, they could not erase that memory. So, people like Aurangzeb, people like Temur, you don't honor your persecutors. You know, so, I mean, uh, I really think that the case for renaming Aurangzeb Road and for re-examining Tipul's role, it is really called for. And what would you say to the opinion that we don't need to look into past because past is horrible. There are horrors that everyone has committed. But tell me one thing, unless you look at the past, you cannot make peace with it. And if the past is in the past, why does it keep cropping up in the present? If the past was in the past, why are Hindu temples being destroyed in Pakistan? Why were the Bamiyan Buddhas blown up? There was no Hindu power over there. The Bamiyan Buddhas were helpless now. Why were they blown up? And why do temples continue to be destroyed in Bangladesh? So the past should be in the past, but unless you face the past, it will keep occurring in the present as unfortunately it has in our case. Now in Afghanistan, why are Hindu girls abducted, converted and married off against their wishes? That same thing happens in Pakistan. So if the past is in the past, why are these experiences again and again coming? Why are we experiencing this again and again? Absolutely. I have two more questions. One, most of these uh, Marxist historians have said that there was no India before, for example, Akbar came, Mughals came. There was no Hindu, larger Hindu community before the British came. Does history really substantiate this argument? I will not use the word Hindu because that word comes into play much later. But I want to the, tell you that the Marxist historians who are saying there is no India before the British came are actually echoing the British colonial view of India. Because the British wanted to justify their presence in India. They didn't want to say that we are an exploiting you know, uh, company or country. So they said that we have come with a civilizing mission. And until we came, India was not even united, it was divided and we united the country. Now, uh, if you look at the ancient period, I'll just give you two, three examples. We've all heard of Kautilya's Arthashastra. Kautilya's Arthashastra, whenever it was written, it says that India, from the Himalayas to the seas, should have one ruler. This is stated in Kautilya's Arthashastra in the time of the Mauryan period. Apart from that, we have other texts which talk about 
the Kshetra of the Chakravartin Raja is from Himalayas to the seas. So this is one aspect. And then you know, the earliest evidence that we have of adoring this land is the Prithvi Sukta in the Atharvaveda. Now that Prithvi Sukta has been described as the first national song of India. And it talks about the geography of this land, its values, its virtues, its unity in diversity, all the, you know, and it says that this land is not a mother to some and stepmother to others. She feeds all her children irrespective of who they are. So this word mother and stepmother, you know, it occurs and the values, you know, what does this civilization, what does this country want? It, wa it cherishes cosmic truth, liberty. And all the values of a modern society are elaborated in this sukta of the Atharvavit. So it is a very fabulous history. And there are so many prashastis, prashastis of the before common era, glorifying this land. And last point, that have you ever noticed that no religious leader from whichever part of the country, like Shankaracharya, if I want to take, they never uh, restricted the teeths of India to that particular Kshetra. The teeths of India were never re region specific. Shankaracharya came from Kerala. The He went all the way up to the north. Kashmir. So, the whole of India was the setting for the gods. That's what we believed. And no ruler advocated pilgrimage only to a particular geographical area. They all had all India compass, view. So these things uh, tell us something about the way we viewed ourselves. Why did we never encourage parochial tendencies as far as pilgrimage was concerned? Tirth was always all India. And at that time, there was no uh, transport. So people took tough journeys and so many took those journeys. Yeah. So it was reverence for the land. My last question. You wrote extensively on Sati. Yes. And uh, there has also been this view among Marxist historians that Hindus were aggressive, their attitudes towards their women were aggressive. Uh, Sati, for example, women were forced to burn themselves after their husbands died. Does history really provide evidence to this view that women did not have equal status or women were oppressed through ancient or medieval India. See, as far as the ancient period is concerned, we have many women like Gargi, Maitri, etc. So I don't want to, you know, there's enough evidence, but I just want to say what I found on Sati. See, because uh, Marxist historians would say that, you know, uh, why are you talking about oppression in our other societies? Look at the way you burnt women. But that was not true. There was one hymn of the Rig Veda, which was the word Agni. There was a mis, you know, mistranslation, which was shown by the British themselves. So the uh, hymn only says, lie beside him and get up and resume your place in the world. Now, the actual number of cases that were, we have eyewitness accounts of, were very few. So I've given those, the one was by, uh, you know, the army of Alexander. They witnessed a sati. Their eyewitness account is there. Ibn Batuta witnessed a sati. So I have given all those instances. So suddenly in the 18th, 19th century, 
we get horrendous figures of 50,000, 1 lakh women emulating themselves every year. And when I studied that phenomena, I realized that this figure was a concoction of the Baptist missionaries. You see, the East India Company did not allow missionaries to operate in its territories in India. They said, we have gone there to make money and don't create social unrest for us. Then the British decided that they will appeal to Parliament, that please pass a law allowing us to convert. So, how to convince Parliament? They presented these horrendous accounts that, you know, every day so many people are emulating. And I've traced that literature. So, it was actually a British missionary manufactured debate, you know. And it is very interesting that many senior British officials of that time who were not missionaries, they wrote to the headquarters that in our territory there is no sati. And they were in Bengal. And you know that we know that widows of Bengal used to go to Banaras. They used to be sent there. And how is it that uh, Bengal has no sati memorial? Sati was an ins institution that became confined to the Rajputs with Johar because they were the fighting class. And for various historical reasons. But my study shows that the manufacture of the Sati debate was the contribution of British missionaries because they wanted to get the right to convert in India and they finally got that right in 1830. It's been a delightful conversation. It's been an insightful conversation. There are so many questions I would still like to ask, but we will do that for another episode of Reason where we will ask questions that you might be also interested in. Thank you so much for thank this lovely for, conversation. Thank you for inviting. Thank you so much. Thank you.